I find it interesting that within any group of people, there are different ways that we all perceive things. I think a great example of this is the jokes that we tell, for example. Some of you, you have not yet learned to appreciate the wonderful world of internet memes. Maybe you're a little bit up on the upper end of the age spectrum, perhaps, I don't know. But, but it's this new form of humor. You really should try it sometime. It's, it's a blessing. But, you know, I'm a millennial, and I've had the privilege of working with our youth department here locally in the past three years or so uh, with our district youth department and, of course, work with a lot of Generation Z, Gen Zers or Gen Z in Canada. And uh, I've come to find out that, you know, there is this cringe factor that it really doesn't matter whether the joke is good or not. The, the types of jokes that these Gen Zers find uh, funny, it eludes me. I, I don't understand it. Um, but I, I asked uh, Justin Lehman, who I, I'm assuming, I'm guessing, is a Gen Zer. I don't even know the age bracket. But, but anyway, uh, they, they just, they'll just sit there. They, they have no, you don't get the courtesy laugh in youth service. Like that. You don't get that in youth service. They sit there and they stare and, and they just, there's nothing for you. But I, I found out why, and it's because the type of humor that at least the students that I have had the privilege and blessing and, and burden of, of leading, uh, it's called post-ironic anti-humor. And I would try to tell you a joke that is post-ironic anti-humorous. But I don't even know one. I, I couldn't tell you one if I wanted to. But, but sometimes, you know, you tell a joke, you think it's going to fly really good, and it just falls flat, right? It's because, and it depends on the crowd. It depends on the generation. It depends on so many factors. And, and it's just interesting to me that the same group of people hearing the same joke, you can have such a wide gamut and spectrum of reaction. Now, a few years ago, and maybe you've seen this, a couple of examples. How many remember the uh, gold and white dress, the blue and black dress from several years ago? Uh, is that on the screen behind me? Now, how many, how many of you see white and gold? Just raise your hand. Really? That's it? How many see blue and black on the screen? Wow, that is shocking to me. There must be something wrong with it. That is definitely, that's definitely a white and gold dress, although I know that it's not, and it, it just, I, I'm looking at it. I'm trying. My heart is, but I can't see it. Maybe you heard this before. Uh, go ahead and play this, this clip at the back. Laurel. 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 Okay, some of you have no idea Laurel. what's happening right now, and that's okay. Laurel. How many how many hear Yanny? Laurel. Laurel. Okay, how many hear Laurel? Laurel. Okay. See see different reactions, same group, same gag, same bit, right? It it's it's kind of interesting that in, in a crowd like this and maybe in our overflow we had a, a different breakdown, but but there's different reactions and perceptions to the same thing being purveyed. Now, it's Pentecost Sunday, and I want to bring this back, of course, to, to something spiritual tonight. In Acts chapter 2, on the birthday of the church, the Spirit was poured out in that upper room, as we know. And it did not stay there. Of course, it spilled into the streets. 120 pour out of this upper room, speaking the wonderful works of God in unknown tongues to them, and it was known tongues to the hearers in the street, everyone that had gathered from various nations for the Feast of Pentecost in 
Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us in Acts 2, verse 6, that, that it was noised abroad in the street. Somebody say, it was noised. It was noisy on, on the first Pentecost, the birthday of the church. That's why I think we, we're in good company tonight when we shout, when we dance, and when we get beside ourselves a little bit. That's apostolic. That's Pentecostal. It was noised abroad. The multitude came together, and, and they were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language the wonderful works of God. Verse 33 tells us down later in the chapter, this is Peter preaching, and he is addressing the crowd about what they're witnessing. He said, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, speaking of Jesus, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, that's us, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. There was a, a visual element and an audible element there on the first day of Pentecost, birthday of the church, because when the Spirit was poured out, it was not just something that you could see on the, on the faces of the believers that day, but it was something that you could hear. There was a sound that accompanied that outpouring of the Spirit, amen, as they all spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. Now, the focus that I would like to, to point to is as they spilled into the streets, they put their faith on display. So we say faith on display. And this is how it's supposed to be. Faith is not something that is meant to be contained within four walls, such as in an upper room there in Jerusalem. But faith is something that should be shared, spoken of, and celebrated every chance that we get, everywhere that we go. Jesus said earlier, he said in Matthew 5, that you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. And so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Put your faith on display, Jesus said. And so in Acts 2, we see that the multitudes, they observe this display of worship and the faith of these believers and, and the celebration of these believers. And within the multitude, you observe varying reactions. The same events, but there's a spectrum of reaction. Acts 2 verse 12, it says, They were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? And verse 13 tells us that others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. These men are drunk. And so here in these two verses, in response to what has just poured into the streets, you have amazement, you have doubt, and you have mocking. I think I've, I've done this before, but, but I find it, it's a good way to remember it. You know, you've got the amazed people in the crowd, and they're, they're the people, they're like, whoa. <laughs> then you've got the doubters, and, and they're kind of on the fence. They're more like the, yeah. See, this, you're acting like my, the youth now, you know. I'm just kidding. Then you've got the mockers, and they're kind of like the, you know. So you've got the, whoa, and you've got the, yeah, and you've got the, you know, the, the amazed people, the doubters, and the mockers. And, and, and this is the spectrum of responses that you will encounter when you put your faith on display. You've got the amazed, you've got the doubters, and you've got the mockers. This spectrum, this gamut, and it's somewhere, it falls somewhere in there. And, and we hope for the former, but, you know, sometimes we get the latter. 
We get labels. We get mocking and all that. But this is not strange in Scripture. I read through the book of Acts, and I come across the Apostle Paul, who was probably likely the greatest missionary that ever lived. I, say, I would say he was. And Paul was often preaching to many people groups in, in many different cities and nations around that part of the world. And in Acts 17, we read about Paul speaking daily in the public square about Jesus. And, and people actually called the Apostle Paul a babbler in Acts 17, verse 18. The great apostle being called names, wouldn't you know? And so he is taken before the high council of the city called Oropagus there in Athens in Greece. And and when he was there, even though the people hadn't received him just a few moments ago, a little bit ago, he still didn't shy away from his message. He put his faith on display in spite of the rejection and the ridicule. And he preached the message of redemption. He preached the gospel. He preached Christ and him crucified. And you find these same reactions here in Acts 17. Verse 32 tells us, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, well, we'd like to hear about this a little bit later. We'll hear about uh, of thee again of this matter. You know, they're putting it off. So Paul departed from among them, but verse 34 says, Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Oropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so here again, just like in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, you have some that mocked, some were kind of intrigued, on the fence, wanted to hear more later, but others clave unto him and believed. You've got essentially the same three reactions. You've got the mockers, you've got those on the fence, yeah, and you've got those that believed. Whoa. Isn't it amazing that the same idea, the same gospel message can be preached, truth can be shared to a group gathered together, and some hear Yanny and some hear Laurel. Some see white and gold, some see blue and black. So many variations in the reactions of the people, of the listeners. But it wasn't just relegated to Peter and the believers on the day of Pentecost, and it wasn't just Paul, even Jesus. He faced some of the same things. Did you know that? He did. The Bible tells us that when he came to Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up for to read. And he reads a passage referring to the Messiah from the book of Isaiah. And he began, verse 21, to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words, words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And verse 28, And all that were in the synagogue when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they, they led him to the brow of the hill whereon that city was built that they might cast Jesus, who had claimed to be the Messiah in their hearing, down headlong. But he passes through the midst of them and he goes his way. And so even Jesus faced rejection. Even Jesus faced this spectrum of reaction when the gospel of the kingdom was preached. Some wondered, whoa. Some were like, Is it, aren't you Joseph's son? They're like, eh. And others wanted to throw him off the cliff. That's not, that's like, ah! Somebody say it's a spectrum. Faith on display. The gospel being preached. And you've, you've got this, this spectrum. One other little example here from John chapter 12. 
Jesus was in Jerusalem. It's the week of his crucifixion. And we read in verse 27, he's praying now, my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And then watch this. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And just like at his baptism, a voice from heaven calls down and speaks over Jesus, the glorified body of God. And so verse 29, this is what I find interesting. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, some said it thundered. They thought it was this weather phenomenon, and others said an angel spake to him. And how interesting, again, we see variance in the perception of people. Some wrote it off as just a natural phenomenon, thunder in the sky. Others recognized it as a supernatural voice that had spoken, an angel. Natural, supernatural, and everybody that you interact with in this world falls somebody somewhere on that spectrum. Writing it off as, uh, you know, you just, this is just, you know, uh, social uh, engineering. This, this is just a figment of your imagination. Some people just write it off and others embrace it as something supernatural. And everybody falls somewhere in between those two bookends. You know, to be honest, it, it can kind of be discouraging, can it, to think that, that you may be rejected by people when you share your faith and put it on display. The reality is nobody likes being called a babbler. Anybody? anybody? No? Nobody likes being called a babbler. You want everybody that you interact with and witness to to see the world the way that you see it and to have an understanding that Jesus loves them and wants to save them, that he has life and life more abundantly for them. And truthfully, I think we all feel this, this certain weight on our shoulders to make sure that those we put our faith on display for, that they get it, that they embrace it, that they see it, right? And we carry this weight. I, I, I've got I've to be studious, and I've got to go deep, and I've got to pray, and, and all those things are necessary and wonderful, but sometimes I think we can carry a weight that's a little bit too heavy for us because at the end of the day, and this is my thought for tonight, their reaction is not my responsibility. How they respond to me presenting the gospel to them, that is out of my purview. It's above my pay grade. It's not within my jurisdiction. That is God's responsibility. Their reaction is not my responsibility. I'm reminded Jesus, when talking to his disciples, he did say, you know, sometimes you will be rejected. You'll be hated of all men for my namesake. And he said, if that happens, if you are outright rejected, sure, go ahead and continue to pray for them. But, but he said, brush the dust, shake the dust from your sandals, move on and just keep on stepping, keep on preaching to somebody else. Don't get weighed down by somebody that rejects you or rejects the message that you are preaching, but just keep on moving. Don't get discouraged because how they react, it's not to weigh you down. That's not your responsibility. Leave that one with, with me. Because the truth is, I can't make people get it. I can study to show myself approved unto God, and we ought to. I, I can be ready always to give an answer to them of the, ha the hope that is within me with meekness and with fear. I can do that. I can be ready. I, I can be instant in season and out of season. I can have a word, and I can, I can know how to preach the gospel backwards and frontwards. I, I, I can know all of these things, but I can't make people get it. 
I, I can't guarantee that they're going to be amazed and that they're going to be in the wonder side and that they're going to believe. I can't. Truth is, I, I, can't, I can't save people. I can't bring revelation to people. Only God can do that. I do my part, but God does His. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks the disciples, Whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And this same concept holds true today, that flesh and blood, mere humanity, cannot reveal the identity the nature, and the person of Jesus to people. Only God truly can bring revelation to the souls of man. I can preach Jesus. I can share Jesus. I can put Jesus on display. But there's a work of the Spirit that only God can do in His sovereignty and in His power. John 6.44 says it very clearly that no man can come to Jesus except the Father which hath sent me draw him. I don't draw, I, I don't draw people. I, I don't have the strength. I don't have the power. I've got his spirit within me. He quickens me to speak. He prompts me to, to reach out and to witness. But it's God that draws people. The Greek word translated draw, just to drive this home, it's, it's helkuo. And this means to, to drag, literally or figuratively. Clearly, with a word as strong as this, a, the drawing is a one-sided affair. It's nothing that I can do for others, and it's nothing that, that others can do as they try to approach God. They can't drag themselves there or make way by themselves. Only God can, can bring people close, reveal himself to them. God is the one that draws to salvation. He will use us, our witness, our testimony, but God does that work. There is no doubt that we respond as, as unbelievers at one point to this drawing, but the drawing is all on his part. Helcuo, it's used in John 21.6 to refer to a heavy net full of fish being dragged to the shore. In John 18 verse 10, we see Peter drawing his sword. And in Acts 16, 19, Helcuo, to draw it, to drag, it's, it's used to describe Paul and Silas being dragged into the marketplace before the rulers. Clearly, the net did not drag itself to the shore. Peter's sword had no part in being pulled from its sheath. And Paul and Silas didn't pick themselves up by the napes of their own necks and, and drag themselves to the marketplace. The same can be said of God and His drawing in the work of salvation. And this is not to negate or nullify our responsibility. Please don't misunderstand and please don't misquote. But, but there is something that God does in the work of salvation. Ultimately, he is the one responsible for whether or not people feel that pull and that draw to a life of faith and belief. God uses us to accomplish this, to be sure. But it's God's ultimate responsibility. I want to partner with God. I want to join hands with God, and I want to be involved in the work of seeing lost souls saved. But, but I need not take more on my shoulders and, and weigh myself down with burdens that I was never intended to carry. I do my part, and God does his part. God does not expect us to work on the hearts of people. Only God can do that. 
And I preach this and I'm sharing this because I think it's easy for us to beat ourselves up because somebody that we witnessed to didn't immediately repent and didn't, you know, start coming to church and didn't become a 50-year seasoned faithful saint overnight. I, th- I think sometimes we, we, can, we can feel the sting of rejection and it actually can become paralyzing. And, and it hinders us from sharing our faith in the future because we took the reaction and we internalized it. And then we become spiritual hermits that don't want to feel the sting of that anymore. And, and God would say, you know what, you're, you're carrying more than what I intended. That's not your job. Their reaction is not your job. It's not your responsibility. It's mine. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 4, for while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, Paul said, you're carnal. You're more concerned with who you came in under than the one who shed blood for you. He said, you're saying, well, I'm a, a Christian after Paul, and I'm a Christian after Apollos. And he said, you're carnal. Who is Paul? And who is Apollos but ministers by whom ye believe? Believed in who? Believed in Jesus, even as the Lord gave to every man. We are just human beings doing the work of God the best that we can. But, but even we have our limits. We have our purview. Paul said, I've planted but I, I've been a traveling missionary. I, I've gone on to the next town, the next city, the next country. And, and Apollos, he stayed behind. He's the one that's been watering the seed that I have planted. But it was God that gave the increase in your lives. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth. But God is everything, the one that gives the increase in the life of every believer, you and I included. Come on, somebody say God gives the increase. God brings revelation. God is the one that saves people and draws people to his side into the kingdom of God. Here's the reality. I can't and you can't make people get it. I can't bring revelation. I certainly can't save people. That's God's job. And if I will do my job, God said, I'm going to do my job. If I will reach however I can, and preach the word to everybody that will listen. God said, you might, you might see rejection, but, but let it roll off your back. Because I'm the one that's responsible after the seed has been sown and watered. We play a part, but God is the one that builds his church. Amen? The psalmist said, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. We can't do this on our own. We can't do this on our own. And I know I'm being repetitious a little bit tonight, but that's intentional. How people respond to the gospel when I share it. Sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? But it's not my responsibility. Just, I mean, we're just conditioned. You know, we, we take so much upon ourselves, certainly in the realm of faith. But, but God said, your responsibility is to preach it. And then my responsibility as God to mold and maneuver and move and speak and, and draw and work. and that's, that's what I do. Why is this important to understand? Because how many of us have shut down our witness because we've been rejected? 
If we aren't careful, we will let a few people's negative reactions to our faith, a few mockers, a few labelers, a few name callers. We will allow these people, their, their reactions to our faith, keep us from sharing it further. And if we allow that to happen, if we, if we do become these cloistered spiritual hermits, then we will never discover more people who are hungry for God. In Acts 14, Paul is with Barnabas. You know, Barnabas, the guy who, who stood by Paul when the apostles were giving him the cold shoulder. You, you know, that, that, that Barnabas. He was a connector, and they're out preaching together, Paul and Barnabas, and, and they're used to heal, the, heal a crippled man in Acts 14. And, and then they begin preaching Jesus with this onlooking crowd. And the crowd is so amazed that they start to think that Paul and Barnabas are Greek gods. They think that Barnabas is Zeus, and they think that Paul is Hermes, the messenger, you know, and, and they just outright reject this. In Acts 14, 19, then, then some Jews arrive from Antioch and Iconium, and, and they win the crowds that were once on Paul and, Bar- Paul and Barnabas' side. They win, it, win them to their side, and the Bible says that they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of town thinking he was dead, and it was all because he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as the believers gathered around him, he gets up and he went back into the town and left the next day with Barnabas for Derby. And after preaching, verse 21, the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Did you catch it? The place where they stoned him nearly to death and drug him out of the borders of the city. Shortly thereafter, Paul, being so persuaded of this gospel that he preaches and so persuaded of the power of God and the call of God that is on his life, he goes back to the same town where they rejected him and really left him almost for dead. Goes back to that same place, preaching the same gospel, strengthening those same believers encouraging them to continue in their faith. And, you know, I think if anybody was, was able or had the right to be a little gun-shy about sharing their faith, I think it would have been Paul who had, who had just been beaten and bloodied by people who had heard him preach. I think I would hesitate a little bit if you guys did that to me. I'm not going to lie. Drag me off the church property, you know, you know, give me a little bit of time off, you know, we'll see. But Paul went right back without fear or intimidation. He gets back up from the rubble, marches right back in, starts preaching in the same town. See, we can't be intimidated because someone didn't react the way we thought they should. Because their reaction, it's not my purview, it's not my concern, it's not my responsibility. Whether they reject or embrace faith, Whether they reject or embrace the message I share, that's not my primary concern. I leave it with God. So what is my responsibility? Simply put, share faith, put it on display, plant seed, water seed, and wait for God to bring the harvest. My responsibility, like Paul, is to let every bit of rejection, every label, let it roll right off my back and keep on stepping keep on moving to the next one. Find somebody else that will listen and scatter the seed. 
If I get worried about how people react to my witness and my testimony, I will keep the satchel of God's word close and closed on my hip and never plant that seed in the lives of people around me. I can't afford to let that happen. Whether they embrace it or reject it, it's not my responsibility. I leave it in God's hands. A couple of years ago, because the times, Reverend Mike Williams, he made this point, and I just felt to include it tonight. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says that we are to pray without ceasing. And we understand what that means. On its face, it means to pray continuously, pray consistently, never stop, never cease. And to be sure, it is important for prayer to be an ongoing interaction with God. And there are instances in the Bible where this understanding is what's being conveyed, right? Peter's in prison in Acts 12, and prayer was made without ceasing of the church. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. Consistent prayer. In Luke 11, there's the parable of the friend who wouldn't stop knocking on the door, referring to consistent prayer. But, but when you read Pray Without Ceasing, Paul, he penned these words, and, and he used an interesting word for ceasing in English. It's the Greek word a dialeptos. It's a compound word. The latter portion is lepto, and it means remnant. And it's a common word in the Bible, but Paul here, he almost seems to make up a word, and he adds the prefix dia to lepto, dialeptos, which means without remnant. Pray without a remnant. When we pray, it's not just that we need to pray consistently and constantly, we need to, but, but we also need to pray without a remnant. That is to say, prayer without the memory of yesterday's disappointment. Prayer without the disappointment, uh, uh, or without uh, remembering yesterday's unanswered prayer. Yesterday's frustration or anxiety. Each time we come to God, we ought to approach Him like little children, unjaded by the past and what has happened in our lives, full of assurance and full of faith. Pray without ceasing. Pray without a remnant. Has God ever not answered a prayer for anybody in the house? You ever prayed for somebody to be filled with the Holy Ghost and, and it didn't happen right there the way you thought it should? It's happened to me before. Maybe you prayed for healing in somebody and they continued to be sick. Maybe you've been praying for a lost loved one uh, you know, for so many more years and you can even count and they're still not here in the church tonight. And how many times have we let the sting of yesterday's disappointment and the remnant of that memory prevent us from praying with full faith and full assurance the next time. We must pray without a remnant. And I think this is, this is so applicable. We need to witness without a remnant. We need to share the gospel without the remnant of yesterday's rejection. We need to go back into Lystra without the remnant of yesterday's stoning and betrayal and beating and, and, and being dragged out of the borders of the town. We witness without the remnant of yesterday's rejection. See, see, here's what I think. I think we all as Christians need to have a certain healthy amount of, I don't care what you think about me. I would rather please God than please man. And so if you reject me, if you reject the God I serve, that's fine. I'm going to let it roll and keep on stepping if you don't mind. I'm going to shake the dust off my sandals. I'm going to find somebody else that I can preach the gospel to. How many times, and I come in for a close soon, how many times have we been trapped 
into paralysis by what we suppose others might think about us because somebody else thought a certain way or labeled us a certain way or didn't embrace Jesus. I say again, how people react, it's not my responsibility. How people respond on whatever part of that spectrum to the gospel, it's, it's not my responsibility. Again, my responsibility is to put my faith on display no matter what. Is that okay? Music, why don't you join me? I'm almost finished. My responsibility and yours is to invest in people and trust that God will take the words I speak and what things I do to bring about transformation in people's lives. That's what I do. I find another and another. One more parable that Jesus shared. It's a familiar one. And uh, I want to close with this familiar parable. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells what we know as the parable of the sower. The same day went Jesus out of the house and he sat by the seaside and a great multitude started to gather around him. And so he goes into this ship and he sits down and the multitude stays on the shore and he kind of sets off into the water a bit. And he's preaching. His, his stage is a boat in the sea. And he speaks many things to them in parables. In one such parable, he said, Behold a sower. Which really isn't the greatest word, in my opinion. Because when I think of, you know, somebody who sows seed, you know, Johnny Appleseed comes to mind for some reason. I don't even know. Whatever. You guys know Johnny Appleseed? He planted apple trees. Is that, is that obvious? I remember there's this cartoon as a kid. This, he was walking along with a walking stick every, I don't know, 10 feet or something. He'd poke a hole in the ground, drop one seed in the ground, cover it. Very meticulous, very scientific. We just bought a raised vegetable garden a few weeks ago. And uh, we started planting stuff in it. Actually, we kind of planted stuff before we had a raised vegetable garden in these little pods, and they were growing so fast, we had no choice. We had to get a raised vegetable garden. The frost is, might still fall, I guess, so it's inside our house right now. I, is that okay? I don't even know if that's okay. They're alive, so that's all that matters. Yellow beans and green beans and green peppers and peas and carrots and cucumbers and tomatoes. We haven't got a harvest yet, of course. I don't know that we will, but, but we're doing it. We're trying it out. And you, you read on the back of the labels, it's like, you know, it's got to be this far apart from, from like seed, you know, like peas have to be an inch apart and then like six inches from anything else different. Cucumbers need a lot of space for some reason, right? The yellow beans are sprouting up. They're starting to intertwine and, and, and I guess that could be bad if they get with something else. It's meticulous. That's what I think when I think of a sower of seed. Now, if you look at the original Greek language, the, the word really is probably better translated as a scatterer. And when Jesus is talking about this parable uh, of the sower, really it's the parable of the scatterer who went forth to scatter. And when he did, some seeds fell by the wayside and, some, and, and the fowls came and devoured those seeds. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth and forthwith they sprung up because 
they had no deepness of the earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered. And then you move on and verse 7, some fell among thorns and the thorns sprung up and choked them. So, so you've got the wayside. No growth, no, no germination. The fowls come and they eat those, those seeds. And you've got stony ground, no depth. They're shallow. And so, you know, the heat of life, it just comes and withers what does happen. Then there's thorny ground. It's, it's not that it's shallow soil. It's, it's decent soil, but there's other stuff in there, and it's the cares of life, Jesus would tell us in the Gospel of Luke and also in this Gospel, and it just chokes out what God is trying to do. But, but other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some 100-fold, some 60-fold, some 30-fold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. The first thing I observe is that only one out of four, 25%, had no growth whatsoever, which, which tells me more people and not actually want what we have. More people will, will show signs of growth if we will but share the gospel than not. But, but the main thing I recognize from this parable is that the size of the farmer's harvest is directly connected to the amount of seed that he scattered. Right? If he scattered sparingly, he would reap sparingly. It's, it's really kind of obvious, Right? But if he was liberal with the seed and threw it everywhere he could, then his harvest would be great. But wouldn't it have been a tragedy for this farmer, for this scatterer, to think back to last year's crops when he scattered the seed before? And perhaps he would reflect on how some of the seed was snatched away by the fowls, and how some seed was choked by thorns, and some was burned up under the sun's intense heat and how tragic it would have been if he allowed previous negative outcomes intimidate him from scattering more seed in the present. And we don't have to wonder what the seed represents. In Luke chapter 8, the parable is this. The seed is the Word of God. And the parable lets us know that as we share the Word of God with our world, there will be this gamut, this spectrum of responses. Here again, wayside, stony ground, shallow soil, thorny ground, but then there's good ground. I'm not responsible for where the seed falls. I'm just responsible to scatter it. I, I can't determine what, what ground. It all kind of looks the same on the surface. So, so I can't pick and choose and I can't be selective. My job, my responsibility is to just be a scatterer of seed. Just, just, just spread the word of God. Preach the gospel to anybody that will listen without the remnant of yesterday's harvest, without the remnant of yesterday's hurt and pain, without the rejection from somebody that didn't want to hear me last time. I just scatter the seed. I just get the word out to whoever will listen. We must resolve as we stand to never let the negative responses of people that don't receive the Word of God intimidate us from sowing right now. I've come to just challenge somebody out of your status quo. You have held tightly onto what you have been given. I don't know why exactly. Maybe because of some hurt or pain or sting from the past. Maybe somebody rejected it outright and you stopped sharing. Can I tell you the reason that God poured out his spirit in the upper room on the day of Pentecost and the reason he still pours out his spirit to this day, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me. 
The reason we've been filled with this glorious gift of his spirit is to scatter the seed of the word of God to whoever will listen and even to those who won't. Their response, it's not my responsibility, but if I will do what I can do, if I will take on my responsibility, God said, I will draw the ones that are hungry. I will draw them close. I will bring them into my kingdom, but we need to partner together and you need to let the rejection from yesterday roll off your back, shake the dust from your sandals and keep on stepping to the next one. I refuse to stop reaching. I refuse to stop teaching. I refuse to stop preaching the gospel. And we are all called to preach this gospel. So we say, it's not my responsibility. It's not my responsibility. Let's pray together here in this service. I want to respond to the word of God tonight. I want us to leave this place with a newfound boldness and a new tenacity despite yesterday to be a witness in this dark, lost world. Let's lift our voices here tonight. Let's lift our hands. Let's lift our hearts heavenward. God, somebody in this place, somebody in overflow, somebody watching online, they've given up. They, they've started clinging a little too tightly and a little too closely to the seed of your word, but there is a challenge in the spirit in this atmosphere now, a challenge to God's people to have a little bit of a looser grip on your word, to be a scatterer of the seed of the gospel into this world. God, whatever the ground it might fall on, I trust that in your hands. God, maybe my family, maybe they've rejected it in the past, but I am not going to stop. I'm going to keep on doing what you've called me to do. I am going to step into my calling as a preacher of this glorious gospel to this lost and dying world. Because if we don't do our part, God, you are hindered from doing your part. God, if Saul needed an Ananias to be saved if Cornelius needed a Peter to be saved. God, you always work through the element of flesh to accomplish your, your purpose. God, I want to do my part, but Lord, I trust you to bring the increase. I pray a boldness would fall upon us now. I pray a boldness to share, to reach, to preach would fall upon this people now in the name of Jesus. Let a fresh fire, a fresh passion for the lost fall upon this church congregation once again. God, we witness, we reach, we teach, we preach without a remnant. God, we step into what you're calling us to today, right now, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Church, I wish you would just lift everything that you have, heavenward, right now. Lift your heart, your hands, and lift your voice. Just begin to pray. Just begin to pray. Pray that prayer like the apostles prayed in the first century. Pray a prayer of boldness over this church. Oh, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Satan.